In the 2018 film, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, Cameron encounters a Lakota character named Adam Red Eagle, played by Forrest Goodluck, who identifies as a Winktay. Cameron's never heard of such a thing. Hey, Adam. Hmm. What's Winktay mean? Winktay? Why do you ask? It's a charged scene where it's pretty clear that Cameron is treading on something important to Adam's identity that might be difficult to talk about with those outside his culture. But Adam explains. Yeah, it's a, it's a Lakotan word for two-spirit. It's, like it's like a third gender. Cameron is still confused, so Adam breaks it down further with an explanation that is, shall we say, correct-ish. Okay, so I'm two-spirit, which... Um, it means I was born with a man's soul and a woman's soul. And uh, literally, wingte means killed by woman, so it's as if the male part of me is being killed by the female part. That makes sense. Now, Cameron is still a bit befuddled until a friend says, It's basically like the Native American David Bowie. Now, this elicits a chuckle from Adam, who adds, I'll take it. And that, as far as I know, is the only on-screen depiction of a Lakota wingte in any film ever. Now, as I said, the film only gets it correct-ish, and we'll get into that in just a moment, but first, I want to emphasize what the film gets right. First, it is true that two-spirit is a way of describing Native American third-gender traditions, and that the Lakota third-gender tradition is called Winkte. Second, it's appropriate to show Adam identifying in terms of the local tradition first and the two-spirit notion only second. Two-spirit is actually a modern term coined in 1990 to encompass a broad range of different local traditions unique to different tribal cultures, and it's usually preferred to think in terms of the local tradition first and foremost. Third, Adam doesn't explain it as a synonym for gay or trans, although these traditions can and often do involve same-sex relations and almost always express some kind of gender at odds with that assigned at birth, traditionally they are not analogous to any modern Western majority culture category. Such categories do no justice to the unique way in which these traditions functioned, nor to the differences between tribes. Now, of course, there is variety in how these terms are interpreted today, and some do actually use them to mean a Native American who is also queer in some sense, but traditionally, they are not the same. Finally, the film gets right that very misunderstanding, that is, you know, the common misunderstanding that Two-Spirit is just a synonym for queer Indian, and the film plays with it. This film scene takes place at a religious school where both Adam and Cameron are taught to pray the gay away, as it were, assuming that Adam is gay or trans when that's not really accurate. The school misunderstands Adam's identity in a manner that echoes very closely Western misunderstandings of native genders throughout history, and I think that was an intentional choice on the part of the filmmakers. It's not explained in the film, and it really might be lost on most viewers, but those in the know might pick up on it and appreciate that irony. So that is the final thing that the film gets right. Two-Spirit is not traditionally a synonym for queer. Now, at the same time, as I said, there's plenty the film only gets correct-ish. For example, the whole male and female souls fighting thing seems to imply some kind of uniform theology underlying the two-spirits concept when there is no such shared theology. The meaning of Winkday as killed by a woman, well, that's only one of several possible interpretations of the word. And lastly, the joke about being the Native American David Bowie, well, funny, kind of suggests eccentricity, whereas... Two spirits traditions were actually quite traditional and respected and mainstream within their cultures. So yeah, it's not quite right. But you know, it's not terrible either. More than anything, this movie kind of leaves the viewer with more questions. What is this two-spirit thing? What does it really mean to be a Winkte? What was it like for them on the Great Plains in the 19th century? And what is it like for them today? That's what we're talking about in today's episode. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the history of sex.
History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Jillian Kenny, historian of women, sex, and magic in medieval Europe. I'd like to thank our Patreon patrons, B. Greenfield and Robert, for making this episode possible. I also want to thank Blanca Iris Acuna for once again contributing the theme song for today's episode. She has been wonderfully supportive, and I am grateful to be able to showcase her lovely talents. Today's music is Father Time by the Eagle and the Raven Band, featuring Key Earth Spirit. Folks, this episode is a bit bittersweet because, as announced last month, this episode is not just the last in this series, but also the last regular release of this show. We may still put out the occasional episode on an irregular basis, so do stay subscribed. In fact, we just received a request from an author for an interview, and I might take her up on that. But this is going to be the end of pumping out episodes on a regular schedule. It's been a fantastic run, but things change. You know, I've got a new job, I'm taking on more work, and other life things are taking precedence. But most of all, I'm just ready for something new. I did more than 100 episodes of Dead Ideas, and this will be episode 71 of The History of Sex, and I learned a whole lot, and it was a blast. But my creative energies are restless, and frankly, I'm sick of deadlines. I am so sick of deadlines. So no more regular episode releases. Now, I will likely be pumping out something creative again in the future, but probably not a podcast. Uh, I just want a new challenge, and I don't know what that thing will be yet. So you can follow me on social media if you want to be there when I do. Oh, and the portraits will continue, by the way. If you are a patron or thinking of becoming one, the Patreon will remain open for you to get a portrait, which I love drawing for you folks, so keep them coming. And you can also listen to the backlog of episodes ad-free as a patron. So with that bittersweet message out of the way, let's make this a show to remember. Folks, this is the fourth and final episode in our series Sex on the Great Plains, exploring sex and gender among the Lakota. This series has been focused on the 19th century mainly, but today we're going to be kind of drifting into the 20th century and later, mainly because we have very few sources for Wingte in the 19th century. We will look at what we do have, uh, but very few of them, and therefore we must rely on later accounts. In a way, though, that's good. It's a good reminder that native cultures are modern cultures that change, adapt, and meet the challenges of the present just like any others, even if they also reach back to traditional roots in the past. Now today, we are exploring the Lakota third gender tradition of the Winkte. And as you might imagine, this is a fairly sensitive topic. Many Lakota are understandably reticent to talk about it given the history of settler culture, misunderstanding native gender and weaponizing it against them, as well as the ongoing stigma against gender variance today. Nevertheless, this is an important topic, and an exploration of traditional Lakota sex and gender just would not be complete without it. We will hew closely to actual first-hand accounts, letting Lakota speak for themselves wherever possible, while recognizing that these accounts may be incomplete, and that views vary even within the tribe. Also, we should talk about pronouns. So in English, of course, we have to choose gendered pronouns to refer to a person, and that's, of course, a hot topic today. In the Lakota language, however, that is not the case. As explained by Reverend Isaiah Brokenleg, who is himself a Lakota Winkte, In Lakota, there are no pronouns. We don't have she and he. In Lakota, men will speak differently than women. We know their gender based on how they are talking and what words they are using. Suppose a male-bodied individual speaks with the words of a woman, or a female-bodied person speaks with the words of a man. In that case, they are Winkte their gender being neither female nor male. So, although the need to choose pronouns is not native to the Lakota language, the manner of speaking is, and that manner leans toward the gender opposite of one's assigned sex in the case of a winkte. Thus, that's what I would generally lean toward in terms of pronoun use, but please understand that this is a choice that I'm making in that regard and should not be taken as an established Lakota custom. 
Oh, and by the way, Broken Leg just now referred to Winkte who are assigned sex as female, but traditionally we only have accounts of those assigned male. We will have a look at some possible correlates for assigned sex female Lakota, but most of today's discussion will regard Winkte who are traditionally assigned sex as male but come to express a third gender. Okay, with all of that out of the way, let's get into it. What is this Two Spirits tradition that the miseducation of Cameron Post calls the Native American David Bowie? So Adam Red Eagle explains to Cameron that a winkte is a kind of two-spirit person. Now, if listeners out there have heard of anything today, it's probably this two-spirit concept. So why don't we start there? What does it mean to be two-spirit? So the term two-spirits is a modern invention created in 1990 at a conference in Winnipeg to replace the old anthropological term birdash, which was, well, let's just say that Western perceptions grossly misunderstood native cultures. Big surprise, I know. The old term had connotations of boy prostitute and were offensive and not remotely accurate, and so this new term replaces that as sort of an umbrella catch-all for all the traditions similar to this. Thus, the new term Two Spirits was created to replace Birdash. Now, why didn't they just choose gay or queer or LGBTQ plus or something like that? Well, such concepts just don't begin to capture the complexity of these traditions. For example, Western queer categories have no ceremonial components, nor any necessary social roles or community functions built into them. What's more, queer categories are usually considered to derive from a strong genetic component, you know, you're born this way, so to speak. But in contrast, two-spirit folk, although they might show signs at an early age, the real confirmation of it tends to come in the form of visions. And it varies by tradition, of course, but this is kind of a trend. And so there's a strong spiritual component. Thus, Western queer concepts just don't fit the bill. And so the term two-spirit was created to stand apart from Western gender concepts. But at the same time, Two-Spirit was never meant to replace the local traditions with all their variety and nuance. So now, let's turn to the tradition specific to the Lakota, the Winkte. So as we've heard in previous episodes, Lakota culture traditionally gravitates between the poles of masculine and feminine, and tasks break down along these gendered lines with men largely hunting bison and women mostly processing bison into food, clothing, tools, and so on. As anthropologist Raymond DeMalley says, Male and female culture was the single most important attribute for defining an individual in Lakota culture. However, that may not be as binary as it would seem to imply. As one 60-year-old traditionalist Lakota puts it, Winkte means different. It is neither man nor woman, but is a third group different from men and women. That is why Winktes are regarded as sacred. Only Wakantanka, the great spirit, can explain it, and so we accept it. Winktes are gifted persons. So, Despite the heavy emphasis on male and female in Lakota culture, there was something apart from or beyond it. The Winkte expressed a third gender category by combining masculine and feminine traits. Sociologist Margaret Robinson reports, citing several earlier scholars, In an article from 1986, one Lakota man, identified as a 60-year-old traditionalist, reported, It's easy to pick out a Winkte. They don't marry women, but they act and talk like a woman, but they're half and half, and will dress mostly like men. The Lakota people interviewed by Williams described the Winkte as engaging in women's quill work and beadwork, and performing traditional dances in the women's style. Beatrice Medicine notes that Winkte engaged in women's crafts, raids children, engaged in warfare as men did, and had sexual relationships with men. So, right there, 
you can already see a dense mixing of male-coded and female-coded traits. I mean, on the masculine side, they may dress mostly as men, according to this source anyway. I've read other sources that disagree. Sometimes it's some articles of women's clothing, sometimes it's mostly women's clothing, sometimes it's men's clothing, but with a feminine mannerism and maybe feminine hairstyle. Uh, it really varies. In any case, uh, they may mostly dress as men. They also take part in warfare which is a masculine activity in Lakota culture. So that's the masculine side. Now on the feminine side, they may wear articles of women's clothing. They may adopt the speech and mannerisms of women. They may raise children, dance like women, and perform feminine production-type tasks like quill and beadwork. Quill and beadwork in particular seem to be something associated with Winkte. Now in addition to this mixing of masculine and feminine traits, Robinson mentions sexual relationships with men. But notice that it's just one feature among many, just kind of thrown in there at the end. It's not the primary defining feature, but just one trait among many. It's not a sexual orientation. Rather, it's a combination of masculine and feminine traits to the extent that it becomes a different gender category, a unique third gender. And such third-gender folk were not eccentrics like David Bowie. They may not have been common, but they were mainstream and traditionally respected within their culture. A Lakota medicine man by the name of Lame Deer said of a Winkte, To us, a man is what nature or his dreams make him. We accept him for what he wants to be. That's up to him. There are good men among the Winktes, and they have been given certain powers. Now, that statement was given in 1971, which is quite late compared to what we've been talking about in this series. You know, long after the Lakota Nation roamed the Great Plains hunting buffalo. So that makes me wonder, what were Winkte like back in those days, you know, in the 19th century and earlier, before colonization, before the reservation period? What were Winkte like back then? Well, unfortunately, we don't really know what Winkte were like in the 19th century, not very clearly. Very little comes down to us from that area that is published and publicly accessible. I'm sure there are stories passed down within families, but I don't have access to them, and the public in general, scholarship in general, doesn't have access to them. So we have very little. As far as visual representations are concerned, none are known save for some glyph-like symbols that show up on some Lakota winter counts. Now, we talked about winter counts in the previous episode. Remember that winter counts are mnemonic devices where Lakota history tellers would record each year by a symbol, recalling that year's most significant event. And in a few cases, they used winkte figures, which were represented in full dresses with phalluses protruding. Now, this is most likely not meant to be some kind of literal depiction, but rather more of like an abstract symbol. And it is interesting that it emphasizes that combination of masculine and feminine traits. But it doesn't really help us to understand what Winkte were like in those days, not visually, at least. And the only other depiction from the 19th century that I could find comes to us in the form of a story involving an unnamed Winkte seer prophesying before an 1866 battle against the U.S. Army. Now, this story was published in 1915 by anthropologist George Bird Grinnell based on accounts told to him by several Cheyenne folks who were present at the battle, including a man named White Elk. So it's not the greatest source. It's obviously recorded by a white man, uh, and it's told to him not by a Lakota, but by Cheyenne individuals in more than 40 years after the fact. Nevertheless, this is the best that we've got, so it's very useful to us. Now, interestingly, the story misidentifies the Winkte as a Heimane. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right because this is a Cheyenne word, and the Heimane is the Cheyenne two-spirit tradition, and it's really quite different from the Winkte. In contrast to the Winkte, the Cheyenne Heimane traditionally wears the dress of the elderly 
rather than a mix of male and female clothing, and abstains from sexual intercourse entirely, at least traditionally. And yet, the Heimane and the Winkte get conflated in this story, likely because Grinnell is hearing it from Cheyenne folks, and he confuses the two. Nevertheless, the person is clearly Lakota in the story, and clearly a Winkte, and so I am going to replace the word Heimane with Winkte in the story, just so it's not so confusing for you. So just a point of accuracy on that. Now, this Winkte in the story prophesies the outcome of a battle known to Lakota as the Battle of the Hundred in the Hands, though settler history records this as the Fetterman Fight of 1866. And this was the key battle in which Red Cloud led the Lakota and their allies to victory against the United States. By the way, in the story they refer to them as Sioux, I've generally preferred to go with Lakota over that, but Sioux is also acceptable by many Lakota today. Red Cloud's war was sparked when the U.S. Army illegally built forts in territory recently conquered by the Lakota, who had already witnessed the horrifying defeat of their cousins, the Dakota, in the U.S.-Dakota War four years earlier. So they knew what fate lied in store for them if they did not confront this growing threat. The illegal forts were the last straw for the Lakota, and so war erupted at a place called Fort Phil Kearney. Now, of course, I could just summarize this story for you, but is that what you've come to expect from this show? No, of course not. Especially not for our final regular episode. And so, yeah, you saw this coming. We have got a special treat for you. An audio drama presentation of the only known published story of a Winkte prior to the reservation period. In this story, the Winkte seer attempts to persuade the neighboring tribes, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, to join the Lakota against the U.S. Army. And now, The History of Sex presents an audio drama. Cheyenne chief called out to his people, saying, Men, do not fall in line with the Sioux. We are not carrying on this war party. The Arapahoes did not form abreast like the Sioux, but stood to one side. Soon a person, half man and half woman, Winkte, with a black cloth over his head riding a sorrel horse, pushed out from among the Sioux and passed over a hill, zigzagging one way and another as he went. He had a whistle, and as he rode off, he kept sounding it. While he was riding over the hill, some of the Cheyennes were told by the Sioux that he was looking for the enemy, soldiers. Presently, he rode back and came to where the chiefs were gathered and said, I have ten men, five in each hand. Do you want them? The Sioux chiefs said to him, No, we do not wish them. Look at all these people here. Do you think ten men are enough to go around? The Winkte turned his horse and rode away again, riding in the same way as before. Soon he came back, riding a little faster than before, and swaying from one side to the other on his horse. Now he said, I have ten men in each hand, twenty in all. Do you wish them? The same man replied, saying, No, I do not wish them. There are too many people here and too few enemies. Without a word, the half-man, half-woman turned his horse and rode off. The third time he returned, he said, I have twenty in one hand and thirty in the other. The thirty are in the hand the side toward which I am leaning. No, said the Sioux. There are too many people here. It is not worthwhile to go on for such a small number. The Winkte rode away. On the fourth return, he rode up fast, and as his horse stopped, he fell off. Both hands struck the ground. Answer me quickly, he said. I have a hundred or more. And when the Sioux and the Cheyennes heard this, they all yelled. <laughs> this was what they wanted. While he was on the ground, some men struck the ground near his hands, counting the coup. 
and after that, the Cheyenne and the Arapaho joined the Lakota against the U.S. Army, and they launched their plan. A small detachment of ten warriors was sent to harass the fort. There, the warriors goaded the soldiers, and the commander of the soldiers, William Fetterman, was under strict orders not to leave the fort, but he refused to be insulted by a paltry ten native men, and taking enough men to outnumber the enemy by more than eight to one, he pursued the warriors, who fled across the plains. Now the native warriors led them across the prairie, feigning fear as the soldiers grew more confident yard by yard. As for Fetterman, he could almost taste victory, but then, suddenly, something odd happened. The ten fleeing warriors turned and faced their pursuers, no longer afraid. Fetterman stopped short. Something felt very wrong. <laughs> then they appeared over the ridges. Instead of ten warriors, they found themselves facing the entire combined forces of the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho, over a thousand warriors in all. Fetterman's eight-to-one odds had become more than ten-to-one against him. The soldiers' hearts leapt into their throats as they realized that this day was their last. It was a slaughter. All 81 soldiers were slain that day. The death count even exceeded the infamous Battle of Little Bighorn, where Custer lost his head. And it was the worst disaster ever to befall the U.S. Army on the Great Plains. After the Battle of the Hundred in the Hands, the U.S. will to fight broke. The war did drag on for another two years, but by 1868, the U.S. was forced to admit humiliating defeat. According to historian D. Brown, For the first time in its history, the United States government had negotiated a peace which conceded everything demanded by the enemy and which extracted nothing in return. It was a total victory. Red Cloud had won the war. And although the victory was short-lived and the Lakota were eventually forced onto reservations, it showed the world that Native peoples could defeat the United States. And it all hinged upon the prophecy of one unnamed Winkte seer who convinced the Cheyenne and the Arapaho to join the Lakota in what came to be known as the Battle of the Hundred in the Hands. <laughs> So there you go. That is the only known published story of a Wingte from the 19th century, at least as far as I could find. So what do we learn from this story? Well, first of all, we see here confirmed that Wingte mixed masculine and feminine traits, half man and half woman is how Grinnell records it. Second, we see that despite their feminine aspects, Wingte did in fact engage in the masculine art of warfare. Third, we see that Wingte were respected. The task entrusted to this seer was monumental. It was no small feat. The Cheyenne and the Arapaho, so the story goes, were resolute against fighting. But rather than sending a chief to give a speech or warriors to make some kind of intimidating display of prowess, they called upon a Winkte to act almost like a diplomat between the tribes. That would never have been done if they weren't respected, not only among the Lakota, but also among the other tribes as well. Finally, we see that Wingte had power, spiritual power, which in this case manifested as the ability to foretell the future. Now, traditionally, Wingte had many other ceremonial and social roles as well. What were those roles? Well, likely they were many-fold, but unfortunately, there's precious little else to draw upon in the historical record. We don't learn quite as much as we'd like from this story or from the winter counts, 
And so now we must turn to more recent accounts from the reservation period. Now, these testimonials represent a much-changed culture, having survived colonization and harrowing persecution to emerge with varying opinions and views. Nevertheless, these remain our best sources for a deeper understanding of what it's really like to be a Winkte. One of the best such sources is a series of interviews conducted in 1982 by anthropologist Walter Williams. Williams interviewed several Lakota traditionalists on the Rosebud and Pine Ridge reservations in South Dakota, including some who identified as Winkte themselves. Their names are concealed in the study, but they represent some of our best accounts of what Winkte were and are like in traditionalist Lakota culture. For example, Williams describes one interviewee as a 49-year-old male who identifies as Winkte. He dresses in pants, but they are women's style. His entire dress and manner suggest androgyny, with a mixture of both male and female aspects. He has always filled a Winkte role and been accepted as such by his family and the reservation at large. He takes a leading role in the tribal ceremonies. Now, this Winkte interviewee describes his own tradition, emphasizing the ceremonial and social roles. Winkte are wakan, which means that they have power as special people. Medicine men go to Winkte for spiritual advice. Winktes can also be medicine men, but they're usually not because they already have the power. An example of this power is the sacred naming ceremony. It takes a Winkte a full year to prepare for this. He starts with a fast and a vision quest with sacrifices to be fully sincere. He works with the family for the whole year, making preparations to the family and the child and closely guiding the child for the year. A Winkte can take on no more than about four children a year. Later, it is the Winkte's responsibility to look after that child. The Winkte makes a medicine bag for the child with a piece of the Winkte's skin and hair, and also a holy stone, which the child will carry for protection during the rest of his life. Traditionally, it was the firstborn and the lastborn that got a Winkte name, but nowadays it's very rare. Now, these auspicious names that are referenced by this Winkte were often bawdy and humorous in nature, but of such spiritual power that they ought not be spoken out loud for fear of losing their power. And famously, Sitting Bull, Black Elk, and Crazy Horse are all said to have received such names. Other ceremonial roles of Winkte include felling the tree for the center post of the Sundance, one of the holiest ceremonies of Lakota. The Winkte also recited a prayer when the post was put in its place and stamped down the earth around it as well. So very significant role in a very significant ceremony. And in accordance with the spiritual power accorded to Winkte, they were regarded with respect. For an example, Winkte could marry men, and when they did, they were considered prestigious spouses. Now, a little bit about marriage customs in Lakota culture traditionally. What was normative was a masculine and feminine pairing. It was not so much that it had to be a sign-sex male with an assigned sex female, but rather that someone who manifests a masculine demeanor, masculine gender, paired with someone who manifests a feminine gender. And so a man marrying a Winkte still fit that traditional mold of marriage. And this did not detract from the masculinity of the husband or imply anything about that husband's gender. It didn't make him a Winkte because he was involved in the normative masculine-feminine pairing. Now, according to another of Williams's interviewees, this one, a 32-year-old Winkte, who dresses in men's clothes but sports a woman's hairstyle and bears a feminine manner. Formerly, higher-class Winkte had up to 12 husbands. Chief Crazy Horse had one or two Winktes for wives, as well as his female wives, but this has been kept quiet because Indians don't want whites to criticize. So clearly this shows a high level of respect for Winkte. At the same time, as in most cultures, respect could be an uneven or often contradictory thing. 
And for example, although wink days were highly regarded in this way, at the same time, fathers might warn their sons against becoming wink day. Demali writes, During childhood, boys were frequently lectured on the importance of acting like men. Parents worried if their sons showed an inclination for girlish games and mannerisms, such boys would be liable to grow up to be winkte, men who dressed and behaved as if they were women. These individuals were considered to be very unfortunate. The greatest tragedy that could befall a Lakota male was to become a winkte. Huh? How does that square with what we just heard in terms of how highly they were regarded in the culture? That's just difficult to understand, you know, given that social respect level. If Wingte were so respected, why would parents worry about their sons becoming one? Well, it's difficult to say. It could be that different Lakota had different views, and Demali is only expressing one of them. Perhaps he had not as many informants as he would have liked, and therefore didn't get the full variety of views. But another possibility is that parents weren't really so much afraid that their sons would become winkte, but were simply using this as a sort of bogeyman to inculcate masculine virtues. It's difficult to say which is actually more true, but what we can say is that in the traditional view, you know, you don't become winkte by failing to be a man, quote-unquote. That's just not how it happens. So no parent would have actually thought that if their son acted kind of girlish or just not man enough that they would become a wink day. That's not how you become a wink day. On the contrary, you become a wink day by a culturally recognized set of experiences usually involving visions. And here we see again that spiritual aspect come back. Demali adds that wink day were not necessarily held to be personally responsible for their status. These boys had dreams that caused them to become wink day. The nature of these dreams is poorly recorded. Now, I've read a number of different accounts of these dreams, and some of them say that the dream is of a wakan woman, meaning a, a spirit or a woman with spiritual power. Others uh, say that it is of a particular kind of buffalo spirit, and still others speak of dreaming of a male messenger that takes you into a teepee where one side has skin dressing tools and the other has bows and arrows. So these are female and male coded items, respectively. And then in the dream, you must choose between these items. And based on that, you either become a wink day or not. Now, regardless of the specific content of the dream, one thing is clear, status as wink day is conferred by this spiritual experience of the dream. So in other words, in the traditional view, becoming a wink day is not a personal choice, it's not an orientation, it's not a gender confirmation, and it's not a failure to be man enough, quote-unquote. Rather, becoming winkte is, I guess you could say, a spiritual calling. You are touched by powers outside you, and that is what makes you winkte in the traditional view. Now, seen in this light, perhaps it makes a certain kind of sense why parents might respect winkte, yet at the same time not want their sons to become one. Because if you think about it, you know, it may not have been what those parents envisioned for their sons, or even what their sons had envisioned for themselves. And yet, when the call comes, you answer. And I can certainly imagine how that might be experienced in an ambivalent way, you know, both a tragedy and a great honor at the same time. And thus, this view, where it's kind of a tragedy but also an honor, may ultimately just reinforce the respect traditionally accorded to those assigned sex as male, but who were called to something different. Now, notice again that in everything that we've just been talking about, it's always referring to sons and boys. These are those who are assigned sex male at birth. But what about those who are assigned sex female at birth? Well, there was no clear two-spirits tradition among the Lakota for those were assigned sex as female. Or was there? Let's look at that question next. So as we heard earlier from Isaiah Brokenleg, today Wink Day may come from those assigned male or female. However, traditionally, Wink day only come from those assigned male. And yet, 
there was one tradition that might be seen as possibly analogous, and that tradition was called the Double Woman Dreamer. Lakota tradition teaches that the double woman may appear in dreams as two women joined by a rope from which a baby dangles. Demali explains, It is clear that the female, life-giving power of these women was symbolically dead. This is expressed by the baby seen dragging from the rope that joins the double woman together, symbolizing the loss of power to nurture life. Hmm. Now, women who dream of the double woman may be called to a different sort of life path. Demali goes on. The double woman dreamer, to the extent that she might choose a lifestyle distinctly masculine by not marrying, behaving aggressively, and soliciting promiscuous intercourse. So here we can see the double woman dreamer kind of incorporating some more masculine traits, some mixing masculine feminine, a little bit like Wink Day. Now, in addition, it is said that a double woman dreamer might enact her vision publicly, walking through camp, flashing mirrors, and causing both men and women to fall prostrate and spit up black earth or plant material. That's what traditionally is said of them. And while in such a trance, a double woman dreamer might obtain power to make shields or war medicines. So here again, we can see that the double woman dreamer shares something, it seems, with the wink day insofar as some masculine traits are showing through. It's not as clear here, but we see with this ability to produce war shields and war medicines, it's like it's touching on the sphere of warfare, which is masculine. At the same time, it is the production thing, which is feminine. So it's kind of a little of both. And at the same time, the double woman dreamer by no means gives up feminine qualities entirely. For example, the double woman dreamer was said to excel at quill and beadwork, which is highly feminine and also shared with Wink Day. Wink Day also were said to be very good at quill and beadwork. Now, scholars disagree on how similar we should really consider these two roles, the double woman dreamer and Wink Day. Demelli places the double woman dreamer, quote, parallel, unquote, to the Wink Day, both being, quote, intermediate categories between male and female, unquote. On the other hand, anthropologist Sabine Lang considers the double woman dreamer to be solidly within the female gender, expressing not an intermediate category, but an ambivalence within the feminine gender itself. In any case, while the double woman dreamer may not have been considered a separate gender like the Winkte, she does clearly defy traditional feminine expectations, and this makes her in some sense at least a possible counterpart to the Winkte, even if not an equivalent. Like the Winkte, she was possessed of spiritual powers and traditionally commanded respect. Now, respect for traditional ways has diminished over the decades whether you're talking about the double woman dreamer or the wink tay or Lakota beliefs in general, that respect has diminished and the wink tay in particular has suffered a decline. By the time Williams conducted his interviews in the 1980s, it was already thought by many anthropologists that two-spirit traditions had died out all across the many tribes of North America. Williams's interviews actually proved that that was not the case. And yet it was true that they had suffered a severe loss of status. As colonization wormed its way into the culture across the 20th century, fewer and fewer respected the old ways. One of Williams's interviewees, this one a 25-year-old medicine man, so not himself a wink tay, but a person who highly regards the old ways, this medicine man reports, Traditionally, winktays were both joked about and respected at the same time. But when people forgot the traditional ways and traditional medicine by going to missionaries and boarding schools, then they began to look down on winktays and lose respect. The missionaries and government officials said winktays were no good, and they tried to get winktays to change their ways. I heard sad stories of winktays committing suicide, hanging themselves rather than change. 
The 1920s and 1930s were the turning point in the Winktay's decline, and after that, those who remained would put on men's clothing. Now, it's notable in this story that the Winktays who committed suicide chose to do so by hanging, because that in Lakota culture is considered a feminine way to die. So in other words, though persecuted, these Winktay chose to be true to themselves until the bitter end. Now, attitudes toward Winkte within the tribe are perhaps a little more favorable today than they were in the 20s and 30s at their nadir, but it is still very much a mixed bag. Another Winkte interviewee reports being called a, quote, disgrace to the Indian race, unquote, by a half-native woman, to whom the Winkte reported, A century ago, I would have been considered that much more special. Thus, respect for Winkte remains an uneven matter today. But the prestige and spiritual power accorded to them traditionally, that part is unquestioned. And this enables many of them, despite whatever misgivings may exist today, to live lives enmeshed in their communities. And this is the last point that we'll drive home today about what it's like to be a Wingte, the integration with community. A final quote from Williams' study makes this point quite vividly. Now, this comes from the first interviewee that we heard today, the 49-year-old Winkte who told us about the sacred naming ceremony. Now, this Winkte poignantly describes a special emphasis on community and family, even while also sharing personal struggles. I love children, and I used to worry that I would be alone without children, but the spirit said he would provide some. Later, some kids of drunks who did not care for them were brought to me by neighbors. The kids began spending more and more time here, so finally the parents asked me to adopt them. In all, I have raised seven orphan children. I worked as a nurse and a cook in an old age home. I cook for funerals and wakes, too. People bring their children to me for special Winktay names and give me gifts. If I show my generosity, then others help me in return. Once I asked the spirit if my living with a man and loving him was bad. The spirit answered that it was not bad, because I had a right to release my feelings and express love for another, that I was good because I was generous and provided a good home for my children. I want to be remembered most for the two values that my people hold dearest, generosity and spirituality. If you say anything about me, say those two things. So that is how this Winkte wanted to be remembered, for generosity and spirituality. And that also sums up the traditional role of Winkte in general, respected for the gifts they use for the benefit of their tribe, gifts conferred upon them by visions as part of a spiritual vocation. And you know, to kind of go back to the beginning, that really illustrates just how different a two-spirit tradition can be from majority culture concepts like gay, trans, gender fluid, or any other of the queer categories that we have today. I mean, going back to the movie quote that we had at the beginning, in stark contrast to the assumptions of the school in the miseducation of Cameron Post that tried to teach Adam Red Eagle to pray the gay away, quote-unquote. Winkte really are quite different from any modern category of queerness. There's no gay to pray away. That's not the thing. And while some Lakota today do use the word Winkte as a synonym for being both native and queer in some sort, Traditionally, it just, it's much more than that. It is about being part of a community and part of a spiritual world. Also in contrast to the miseducation of Cameron Post, it's not about being eccentric like a Native American David Bowie. <laughs> it is about being different, but not like some kind of alienated Ziggy Stardust figure. No, no, no. Rather, it's about being different within a community that has a place for you. It's not eccentric, but mainstream, not alienated, but integrated. As Lakota Winkte Reverend Isaiah Brokenleg says, When you're coming out as two-spirited, it's much more of a coming in. We often come into the sense of belonging. We come into our understanding of the two-spirit identity and what our role and place is within our communities and families. 
it's not a declaration. It's a presentation to our communities that we are ready to serve. Within my culture, I can be Indian, gay, and wink day. I don't have to leave a part of myself behind. And there you have it. That is the two-spirit, third-gender tradition of the Lakota, the Wink Day. Well, that's all I've got for you today, folks. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. That's it for our series, Sex on the Great Plains. And that is it for our show, The History of Sex. It's been a great run. And I really couldn't have done it without all of you, the listeners, supporting me. Your write-in comments, your fun portrait ideas, and your gentle corrections even when I've kind of messed up here or there and had to correct myself. All of these things helped to make this show the quality work that it is, and I feel good about how far that we've come together. And, you know, we may still release the occasional episode on an irregular basis. You know, there was that author that, uh, you know, requested an interview. We might do that. So do stay subscribed to the show to get whatever else we might end up putting out in the future. Also, if you would like to get a portrait or enjoy the back catalog of episodes ad-free, you can still sign up on Patreon. The Patreon will remain open. And there, $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you mixing and matching your masculine and feminine traits, making war or making bead crafts as you darn well please, or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome, I promise. Just go to www.patreon.com slash btnewberg. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. And by the way, the Patreon proceeds collected during the Sex on the Great Plains series will be donated to One Spirit, a volunteer organization helping the Lakota meet their goal of achieving food sovereignty and self-sufficiency in their communities. Special thank you once again goes to Blanca Iris Acuna of the Eagle and the Raven Band featuring Key Earth Spirit for contributing today's theme music. You can check them out on YouTube for more. All right, everyone, this is it. I hope you've enjoyed this show, and I hope you join me in my next creative endeavor, whatever that may be. Oh, and feel free to drop me a line anytime you want at btnewberg at gmail.com. I love hearing from you all. For the history of sex, this is BT Newberg signing off. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.